All right, tonight we're going to continue our study on Christ in the Old Testament. And we've covered, of course, already the, uh, the prophecies of Christ that we found throughout the Old Testament. And also, we spent a considerable amount of time looking at the personal appearances of Christ prior to his incarnation in key Old Testament events uh, known as Christophanies. And then now we've come to the third and final section of our study, which is uh, seeing Christ in the Old Testament, what are called biblically types and shadows. And uh, what we've identified types to be are prophetic symbols. These are symbols related to Christ in which the symbol is not Christ and Christ is not the symbol, but they they point to him forward in history in some significant way, highlighting either some aspect of his nature or some aspect of his work that he would accomplish. And uh, what we are doing is breaking all of the types and shadows into seven subgroups or subcategories. And the first one we're studying are Christ in Old Testament Seemingly random Old Testament things, but each one pointing to Christ in a significant way. Uh, Last time we covered the first three. Um, Christ is as seen in the light of creation in Genesis 1. Christ is seen in the imagery of the tree of life in um, early in Genesis as well in the Garden of Eden. And then Christ in the, uh, the spiritual dream that the Lord gave to Jacob in which he saw a ladder stretching from uh, heaven to earth. And uh, that ladder, Jesus himself, in his teaching to his disciples later, identified with him, uh, meaning that he is the connection or the bridge, spiritually speaking, between heaven and earth. Otherwise, uh, there being a gap that's insurmountable, in which we could not possibly cross over into heaven, uh, and that the only uh, way, therefore, is through him. All right, so what we're going to do is um, we're going to try to accomplish a few more than three tonight. We'll see how far we get. Uh, The next one is in Genesis chapter 49, is when we first are introduced to it. And this is the imagery or the type of Christ represented by a lion. This should be a fairly familiar one to uh, some of us, but I want to also, as we develop this, I'm going to tag on a a point that really applies to all of these uh, types that we're studying. But let's read first. This is from Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. And the context here is we're at the very end of the life of the patriarch Jacob, uh, he is. He knows his his life is coming to an end in this world, and he calls his sons together, and he speaks to them by way of giving them what we can call a prophetic blessing. He he pronounces a specific blessing upon them, but he's speaking about their future and by the Spirit of God identifying what's down the road for them and uh, for uh, the particular lion imagery we're going to look at the blessing the prophetic blessing that Jacob pronounced and gave to his son Judah and of course this 
we'll see the connection to Jesus because um, even apart from the imagery because of uh, Jesus being descended from the tribe of Judah. So reading verse 10, or excuse me, verse 9, uh, Jacob's under the inspiration of the Spirit of God says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All right, so there are, there are two elements that uh, Jacob, by the Spirit of God, emphasizes speaking about Judah's future. And he's not speaking about Judah personally in the sense of Judah himself will not experience these things that are being described. These are going to be fulfilled in the far distant future to Judah's own life uh, in this world. But it is targeting, or Jacob is targeting one specific descendant of Judah who is a son of Judah and who is, of course, going to be the Lord Jesus and is going to fulfill what is being described in these verses. The two elements are he ties Judah to the imagery of a lion. Uh, He actually uses three distinct elements. I'm not going to get so much into why the three distinct elements, but he highlights Judah in connection to a lion's cub, then a male lion, then a female lioness. And all of them are then tied to what he says in verse 10, so that we understand, if we read it in the original context, that the lion imagery is communicating something very specific. It's not everything that can be known and understood about a lion will apply to Christ, but these elements that do apply to our understanding of a lion's role in this world will be highlighted by what is then described in verse 10. Verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Uh, what Jacob is doing here is identifying that at, some, uh, at this moment that he speaks it, at some unknown moment in the future, uh, Judah is going to rise in significance above, among but above the other 11 sons of Jacob, and he is going to become the ruler over all of Jacob's descendants, the ruler over Israel. And the, uh, the, the specifics of the scepter and the ruler's staff, those were well-known items that a ruler would hold as he would sit upon his throne in order to signify that he had the authority of a true king. And so the lion imagery in verse 9 is tied to the ruler imagery in verse 10 in the sense of, and we still even have this, it's amazing that it's come all the way down into our culture some hundreds upon hundreds of years later, we still refer to the lion as the king of the jungle. Now, what's interesting about that specific phrase is that lions don't actually live in the jungle. So I don't, I don't know why, why the jungle part of it got tied to that. But uh, lions are considered to be the king of their domain in terms of where they actually live. Um, not that they're necessarily the biggest, they're not. Elephants are bigger, for instance. 
Uh, not that they're the strongest. Elephants, again, are stronger. But elephants have no interest in their domain of ruling over that area. They just want to be safe and they want to be left alone. And they will only attack in a circumstance when they're being threatened or they're, they're feeling like they're being threatened. Uh, lions, on the other hand, are what we call predators. They, they actively go out and seek to dominate the surrounding area in which they live. All right, so in some way, then the lion imagery highlights something, as I mentioned before, either we're, we're seeing in these types a, a, a highlighting of some aspect of the nature of Christ or some aspect of the work of Christ. And so for this one, we're going to emphasize the work of Christ is in focus here, which is his work completed, his work finished, his work reaching its ultimate expression, which is not focused upon his death on the cross, but focused upon both a combination of his resurrection from the dead and his ascension back to heaven, in which he sat down upon the throne of God in heaven and was enthroned. And from that point forward, the scepter and the ruler's staff have not departed from his hands. And he truly rules as lion over all of creation and all of existence. Now, I want to connect this with some, some passages that indicate those, those threads or those elements. But before we do, I'd mention that uh, this is a good example, and I, I want to use this then to, to um, kind of establish an interpretive principle that we're going to hopefully keep in mind as we go through all of these different types. And that is that um, types are not meant to function as like a symbolic code. Uh, the idea of a, of, a, of a so-called symbolic code would be if you have a, a secret code language, like for instance in World War II, um, our nation uh, used uh, Navajo radio operators to, to send messages between various units and they would speak in the Navajo language because they knew that the Germans who were listening in or the Japanese that were listening in were not able to understand the Navajo language. And so the code was the Navajo language. But in that case, it, the words that were used mean the same thing in every single instance. In a code, there's a, there's a consistency of meaning in every occurrence. So what I want you to understand about the biblical types is they don't function like a code in that sense. So we have this wonderful imagery here. It's symbolic imagery. It's highlighting, a in this case, a specific aspect of the work of Christ. But it's not functioning like a code in the sense that, okay, now that we know that the lion represents the completed and finished work of Christ as as displayed in his rule upon the throne of God in heaven. Therefore, every time that I find anywhere else in God's word a reference to a lion, I can then conclude that what's being discussed or what's being described is Christ sitting upon his throne ruling, and it's being portrayed in some symbolic way. And that's just not the case. Let me give you a couple of of, uh, examples in this. Um, Turn, if you would, to... um, First Peter, 
chapter 5 in the New Testament. A very famous lion reference. And if these types do function as a code, then we would have a big problem in interpreting this specific passage. I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And this is in a group of exhortations that Peter is giving the church. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All right, so if types function as a code, what's the problem when we get to this passage? We're going to assume that Peter referencing a lion means that Peter is now talking about Christ being symbolized by a lion, except what? Peter connects the lion imagery in this case, not to Christ, but to Satan, to our adversary. So you can't get any more of a, uh, an obvious contrast in the symbolic connection. What that tells us if we read both passages in context is the symbolic imagery of a lion in one sense perfectly fits the work of Christ, but in another sense perfectly fits the work of Satan. So you and I as readers and interpreters of God's word don't want to mix those two elements up and end up with some kind of weird hybrid understanding uh, thinking that the work of Christ is somehow associated with Satan or the work of Satan is somehow associated with Christ. So how do we distinguish which one is a, a, a type, a symbol of Christ, and which one is, is a symbol of the work of Satan rather than of Christ? You have to pay attention to the context. You have to be able to distinguish how the imagery is being used and then draw the right conclusion as to whether the writer is intending to stir your perspective toward a new understanding of Christ or whether he's using that imagery in an entire different way for an entirely different reason. So what is the way that Peter's using the imagery of a lion here? He's using the lion as a predator. So yes, the lion rules over his domain and that appropriately represents Christ, but the lion is also just in the natural scheme of this fallen world, a predator. And a predator never seeks the good of those that it is hunting. A predator has only one thought in mind, and that's to catch its prey and to devour it for its own benefit, not thinking anything about the benefit of the person or the thing that the other creature that's being devoured. So, of course, the predatory aspect of lions would not connect and does not represent Christ either in his nature or his work, but it does perfectly display the uh, role of Satan functioning as a spiritual predator. Uh, let me give you another example. Um, judges. Chapter 14. And this is from an event 
in the life story of Samson. And I won't set up all of the uh, backstory here, but we'll just pick up with the, the lion element here in Judges 14, verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, not upon the lion, but upon Samson. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although although he had nothing in his hand, meaning he had no weapon to defend himself in the circumstance, he, Samson, tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. All right, so this is one of the real world, real life events that happened in the life of Samson, but they demonstrate and display the the unique, special uh, ability that the Lord, by his spirit, gave to Samson to function as a judge during a, a very difficult time in Israel's history. In some circumstances, it enabled him to defeat the enemies of Israel. In this circumstance, it demonstrated his ability to dominate a predatory animal that was seeking to devour him, uh, kind of like what Peter was describing in his passage. And so the question is, we've come across the lion again in this passage. So we've got now three lion passages. The first one in Genesis clearly Although it's attached to Judah, it's really referring to a descendant of Judah. The second one is connecting the imagery of the lion to the work of Satan. What about this passage? Is this a Christ symbol, this lion, or is this a Satan symbol? And the answer is, it's neither in this case. It's just a lion, no, and when I say just a lion, I don't mean to diminish the, uh, the amazing miracle that was at work through Samson, uh, taking just his bare hands and literally ripping an animal as large and as dangerous and as strong as a lion, according to the text, into pieces. So it was an amazing thing that happened, but the lion here doesn't have layers of deeper symbolism connected to it. It's simply a threatening, dangerous, strong animal, and it demonstrates the special strength and the special ability that that uh, Samson had in this moment as the Spirit of God rushed upon him. So we don't want to symbolically connect the lion here to Christ. Obviously, why? Why wouldn't we connect it to Christ? Because Samson's the hero in this story. If you're gonna if you're gonna find Christ represented anywhere. In the story, you would want to somehow see it connected to Samson. And there is a possibility theologians have some discussion and debate as to whether Samson functions as a type of Christ. But nevertheless, we wouldn't, if we saw Christ in the story, we wouldn't see it in the role of the lion. And it's not really functioning as a symbol of Satan. Later, Peter takes imagery like this and applies it to Satan, but I don't think the idea here of this passage is there's this deeper symbolic meaning of Samson defeating Satan. 
is simply he had the strength and the miraculous ability by God's spirit to defeat this predatory animal. So what I want you to see is you have the same imagery of a lion in one case points to Christ and another case points to Satan and in a third case doesn't function as a symbol at all. It's just a description of a real world event. And only by reading each context carefully can you appropriately draw the right conclusions about the use of the imagery. All right, so I said we'd look at a couple of other passages that use this lion imagery, and now we're back to how the lion does, in some sense, represent Christ. Let's look first in 1 Kings. And we'll be in chapter 7. We'll just pick up a single verse. And then we're going to jump over to chapter 10. What's happening here in chapter 7 of 1 Kings is the Lord has appointed for Solomon, the son of David, to build a new and special structure in Jerusalem that is going to replace the tabernacle of the Lord, which has been the the special symbolic structure. We'll eventually, when we get in our study of, of the types and shadows, we'll get to a segment that it has to do with the structures of the Old Testament that point to Christ. But all of Israel's history from Moses to Solomon, the tabernacle, that moving tent structure, uh, has functioned as an important focal point of Israel's relationship with the Lord. But that has now, that has now served its pur- the Lord's purpose in history, and it's going off of the stage of history. The tabernacle is being replaced by the Lord's intention with a more permanent and stable structure, which is the temple to be built in Jerusalem. And he's appointed Solomon, the son of David, to build it. So let's pick up in chapter 7 with just one detail uh, that, and there are many, many, many details about this structure, but I want to to highlight this one, and that's in uh, chapter 7, verse 29. We're talking about uh, panels that are are, uh, being used in various ways in the temple structure. And on the panels were set, that were set in the frames, were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the frames, both above and below, the lions and the oxen, there were wreaths of beveled work. All right, so without going into all the details of what's mentioned in this verse, I just want to say that the Lord in the blueprints, which, by the way, he had revealed to King David, He had given to King David the plan for the construction of the temple. David passed that on to his son Solomon, and it was left to Solomon by the Lord's appointment to actually build the structure that David had had written out by the the hand of the Lord upon him. And in that, one of the things that the Lord wanted in his house, in his temple, was a representation on these special panels of three things, lions, oxen, and cherubim. We talked in some detail about the cherubim last week in our study. And um, oxen serve their own symbolic purpose. 
But here we're focused on the lion. I just want you to notice and understand that the Lord wanted a representation of lions in the temple. We have basically two questions to ask about that. Uh, Is it significant or is it insignificant? Meaning, if it was insignificant, it's just that, you know, the Lord wanted kind of a painting of some interesting stuff on the walls in the temple. Just like, um, how many of you have only bare walls in your house? No pictures, no photographs, nothing, just bare walls. How many of you? Anybody? (laughs) One. Okay. We got to work with you on your uh, interior decoration, Ken. Um, Most people in their homes, including the Lord, have things of beauty that are decorating the walls that are are serving some functional purpose in their home. And one of the things that the Lord wanted as a decoration was a lion, or here, plural, lions, represented on these panels. There's reasons for that. Now let's uh, jump over to chapter 10. We're still in the description of the temple, and we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. And actually, this portion we're in the, uh, we've shifted to from the temple description to the description of uh, Solomon's throne room, which is symbolically related to the temple, but is a separate structure. So we'll read in verse 19. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom, meaning it was more magnificent more awesome to to observe and behold than any prior king's throne room had ever been in all of history up until that point. And the the imagery that specifically is in in focal point here that Solomon intentionally built was the imagery of lions in connection to his throne. And of course that is the imagery of the lion that was originally described in Jacob's prophecy of blessing to one of the descendants of Judah being represented by a lion and the rule of Judah over the other tribes of Israel. And of course, Solomon descended from which tribe? The tribe of Judah. And of course, his his uh, father David can trace his lineage, could trace his lineage back to Judah. Okay, uh, one last pair of passages, both in the book of Revelation, to uh, finish off these connections. And the first one is in Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to return here for just a moment to the description. Now we're not in the throne room of Solomon, we're in the throne room of heaven, the throne room of God himself. And we are looking here at the, the unique living creatures 
that God created to surround his throne, similar to the, the representations of lions that surrounded the throne of Solomon. Now we see here, starting in Revelation chapter 4, we'll just read verse 7. Well, actually, I'll read verse 6 just to get the context. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And we recently discussed this, uh, this detail of them being full of eyes in front and behind. And then verse 7, The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, um, most theologians, and I certainly agree with this conclusion, see in these four cherubim that surround the throne of God in heaven uh, symbolic representations of four different aspects of the person and work of Christ. Uh, the lion representing a specific aspect the ox representing another aspect, the the face of a man, a third aspect, and the flight of an eagle representing the fourth aspect. And there's um, lots of historic theological speculation, which I also agree with, of connecting those four elements to the four primary emphasis points of the four Gospels. Meaning that we've talked before, and we I, I made this point of emphasis when we studied through Matthew together, that each one of the four gospel writers, while they're all telling the story of Christ, they're all telling the story of Christ from a different perspective with a different spiritual assignment from the Lord. And um, the, the lion aspect pointing to the rule of Christ, pointing to the, the reign of Christ, and that would connect most directly to uh, the Matthew gospel account, which is all about the king and the kingdom of heaven. Now let's uh, look one chapter deeper into chapter 5. And this is uh, probably the most famous of all of the, the Jesus represented by a lion passages. I'll just start reading in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is God the Father represented on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, that's John, the apostle, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders, and these are, this is one of the 24 elders seated upon one of the 24 thrones surrounding the central throne of God. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so here, John, uh, who is later writing what he had experienced in heaven. Uh, He writes that he heard one of the heavenly elders proclaiming and identifying that Jesus is connected to the original prophecy 
that Jacob had given to his son Judah and that Jesus is the personal fulfillment of that prophecy and is given here now a title of fulfillment of that prophecy, the title being the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And just in case we misunderstand, a brief description of what that lion imagery is all about is then given to us. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So the idea being that uh, the rule or the conquest of Christ over all of the forces of darkness and over all of the sin of mankind is all uh, being summed up in his victorious return to heaven in his ascension. All right, so I spent a lot of time on this first one. We're, I'm going to pick up the speed now um, as we're going through the rest of these tonight. Uh, the next one is found in Exodus chapter 15. And this one we're going to see in our ESV translation is translated log <clears throat> in the New American Standard. Uh, it's translated tree. You can translate it either way. The meaning is essentially the same. And this is from um, an account early in the Exodus as the children of Israel have just now successfully, by the miraculous grace of God, they've, they've crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground. They're on the safe side of the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his chariot army have been drowned or Pharaoh's army at least has been drowned in the Red Sea and the children of Israel now are on the on this Sinai wilderness side um, and they're forever now separated cut off from uh, Egypt where they were enslaved and they sing this wonderful song on the far side just a song of victory and celebration of what the Lord has just done which is called or identified for us uh, elsewhere in scripture as the song of Moses and then we're going to pick up the imagery here in, or the description in verse 22 of what happens next to them after this miraculous event of the Red Sea. There's another miracle that takes place right after the Red Sea, but it's, it's one of the, the most commonly overlooked miracles of the Bible because it's just a short little description. And compared to the hugeness of the miracle of the splitting of the Red Sea, this one seems like just kind of a small thing. But in terms of miracles, I don't know if there's like a, an actual miracle scale in terms of like, okay, this miracle is a 10 and this other miracle is only a, a, a level 7 miracle. To me, something's either a miracle or it's not. And so I don't want to diminish any of the miraculous interventions of God in history. This is one of what we might think is smaller, but still an amazing and miraculous event. Verse 22 then, and we're in uh, Exodus 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And what's meant by that is not simply, uh, have, you ever, have you ever had like uh, water that just didn't taste that good to you? Yeah. You know, kind of like tasted a little off. But if you drank it, Maybe you were in a circumstance where you needed to drink it. Um, like I've had, back in the old days, they didn't have these, these uh, special plastic water bottles that you can carry into the wilderness. In the old days, when we went camping, 
you had a, a metal canteen. If you had water in that canteen for three days, um, at the end of those three days, you go to drink your water and you're glad to have it because you need it, but it would taste a little metallic. It would taste a little bitter in that sense because it took on some of the element of, of the canteen, I guess. But that's not what's being described here. It's not bitter in the sense of just tastes a little off. Bitter in the sense of like in the old Western movies, you're, you're going through the desert and now here's this water hole in the desert and just before one of the men uh, drinks it, the horse, the horse starts to lap up the water and then it immediately keels over and dies. Bitter in the sense of poisonously bitter is what's being described here. They could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter, therefore it was named Mara, which simply translates as bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, of course, because why? It's got to be Moses' fault that they're in this circumstance because he's the one that led them out of Egypt where they had at least water to drink. Now they don't. They grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, Moses here in, uh, this is what I would call a, uh, a leadership prayer of desperation. That's when everybody that you're leading uh, isn't really happy with you. And you, you know, you have nowhere to turn as a, a, a leader of God's people other than to the Lord in a circumstance like this. And so Moses does the right thing. He cries out to the Lord. And as he cries out to the Lord, the Lord, in our translation, the Lord showed him a log. Now, you might notice at the very bottom of the page, uh, if you're reading in the ESV, a little notation after the word log uh, connects to the bottom of the page. It says, or tree. So the Lord showed him a log or a tree. So I don't know. Both translations are possible. It could have been just a branch of a tree that broke off or like a trunk of a tree that was just there or it could have been an actual tree. There's no way to know for certain, but if you're asking me my opinion, I don't think it was a log. I think it was actually a tree. And so I'm, gonna, I'm going to agree with earlier translations that translated as tree. Why? Because one element about a log is it comes from a tree, but it's now what? Dead. A log is disconnected from the life-giving roots that, I, that are absolutely essential to the life of a tree. So a log is dead. A tree is still living. So I believe that what happens here is the Lord shows Moses a living tree. How many would there be in the wilderness? Not many, but there was one there by the Lord's design. The Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the water. This is why, by the way, some translators like the ESV choice in this circumstance, why they chose to change the word tree to log. Because it, in their minds, it doesn't make a lot of sense to throw the entire tree into the water. It would be much easier if there was just a log laying there and he just throws the log into the water. But trust me, if it was meant to be a living tree, Moses was fully capable, it doesn't have to be a gigantic tree, he's fully capable of digging that tree out and then throwing the entire tree into the water. And what happens when he throws the tree into the water? The water became sweet. Now sweet here is not like suddenly he you know, found some sugar and added it to the water. We're talking about it became 
palatable. It became drinkable. It, it's, uh, I think the word is uh, potable, potable, potable. potable. Uh, it's, it's able to be ingested without harming you in any way. So the difference here between bitter and sweet is simply one drink of the bitter water will kill you, whereas the drink of the sweet water will actually refresh you. So what's the typological imagery here? Well, we in our, in our study last week, we focused on Christ being connected to the tree of life, being represented as a symbolic type by the tree of life. And I think this is just carrying forward that same imagery, but now in the context of their Exodus experience. The idea is that the circumstances in which they find themselves are bitter, killing circumstances. And had they not had a right relationship with the Lord in this circumstance, they would have died in this situation. But because of the Lord's presence and because the Lord is watching over them and because the Lord intends to deliver them and to save them in this circumstance, he wants to ensure that they're going to have actual water to drink. Now, what's interesting is one of the images that we're going to look at in just a couple of minutes is the imagery also in the book of Exodus. And it's actually chapters before this that it happens in which there is a rock that is split open in their wilderness journey and living water comes out of the rock in order to provide water for them to drink. So why didn't the Lord provide that rock water, that miraculous rock water for his people in this circumstance? It's because there is a different typological symbolic connection that the Lord is wanting to illustrate. And that is the turning of the bitterness in life to sweetness in life. And what is it that causes bitterness in life, biblically speaking? We're not talking about just in terms of our emotional feeling about certain things, but from a truly spiritually discerned biblical perspective, the only thing that makes life bitter is sin. And the only thing that can resolve the death-dealing properties of sin is the intervention of of a living tree or a tree of life, which is, of course, the sacrifice of the perfect life of Christ for our sake, which then transforms the bitterness of the water that we're ingesting in this fallen sin, sin-filled sin world into sweet water, which is life as it's meant to be lived and experienced in right relationship with the Lord. Now, let's connect this to one passage in the New Testament. Galatians. And I'm going to try to do this for each type. Connect a minimum of one New Testament passage to each one of these types. Galatians chapter 3. And we'll read verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The idea here is 
the bitterness of the curse that the law highlights, which is the curse of sin, is transformed from bitterness to sweetness by the introduction of the sacrificial death of Christ upon the cross. All right, let's move to the next one. And I I briefly covered this one in our introductory study, so I won't spend a lot of time on this one, but I do want you to to see it in its original context. Um, Numbers chapter 21. And this is the event known as the... um, the bronze serpent. And we're still in the, the um, Exodus journey of Israel through the wilderness. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by, way of, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. The worthless food that they're loathing is, um, of course, the manna in the wilderness. So verse 6, all we have is a brief description of the, the heart perspective and heart attitude of the people. And the complaints, the grumbling and the complaining of the people against both the Lord and Moses. And then verse 6 is, and we have to to read into the connection here, it's the Lord's response to the complaint of the people, how the Lord feels about their complaint. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Now, the idea of them being fiery serpents does not mean that these snakes were literally on fire. We're talking about a description, most likely, of what it felt like when they were bitten as the venom of these snakes was traveling through their bloodstream. They most likely felt like their bodies were on fire with the poison of the venom just as they were dying. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. It's amazing how um, the judgment of the Lord being presently experienced can shift even the hardest heart's perspective. Um, Suddenly they're in a repentant acknowledgement of their sin. They came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, which tells us what, even though it took the bites of the fiery serpents for them to own up to their sin. They knew even before the serpents came that they were sinning by complaining against the Lord and against Moses. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. What, what a good leader does. He doesn't say, okay, well, you know, I would have prayed for you if you hadn't complained to me or about me. And I'm not praying for you now. You, know, you just figure it out. Uh, you know, he, he intercedes for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, and this is apparently as Moses is praying, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. 
And if, a, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. All right, so in, in brief, because we, again, we did cover this already. What's being portrayed here, and this one we're not left to just kind of figure out or discern. Uh, we have the testimony of the Lord Jesus himself drawing this connection for us. But what's happening here is the bronze serpent is, of course, a representation of what? What is the, what is the imagery of a bronze serpent? What, what, what event would it evoke in the minds and hearts of the people? Now, of course, they're in a, they're in a dramatic crisis where their, their neighbors are dropping dead from the bites of these serpents. But still, as later they think about this event, they have time to, to, to kind of chew on it and think about the implications of it. There's an obvious imagery connection here. What should it connect to in their minds? The Garden of Eden and how problems between the Lord and his people first began, which was with a serpent leading the children of Israel uh, as represented in the garden by Adam and Eve into a, a temptation leading to a sin. That sin then changing everything from that day forward. So here, the serpent is clearly a reference all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And here's where we're going to have to exercise that extra measure of discernment that I was talking about in our first Example, and when we were looking at the lion, uh, ordinarily, if we're thinking of serpent imagery, who would we connect serpent imagery symbolically to? Christ or Satan? Satan. That's an obvious one. It's an easy one. Uh, throughout Scripture, not every mention of a serpent is a Satan symbol, but there are many symbolic connections when serpents are mentioned to the work of Satan. Now let's take this and look then into the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And this is the discussion one night, private discussion between Jesus and one of the Pharisees by the name of Nicodemus. And the early part of the chapter, which we won't have time to read, is Jesus um, confronting Nicodemus with the, the necessity to be born again. But we're going to pick up in verse where Jesus makes the connection to the Numbers passage in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All right, so Jesus clearly is grabbing the story from Numbers chapter 21 about the children of Israel complaining about the Lord and his chosen deliverer, Moses, and how the Lord sent the fiery serpents as a judgment upon the people and how that turned the hearts of the people. And as Moses interceded, he was instructed by the Lord with a special instruction 
make a, a, a representation of a serpent, put it on a pole, and of course, since the, the bronze serpent is not wiggly, it's, you know, it's firm as a, as a metal, and it's put on top of the pole, or at, some, at least somewhere near the top of the pole, high enough so that as the pole is lifted up, the people in the camp, throughout the camp, can see the serpent on the pole. You have kind of a representation of a cross with the serpent and the pole representing that cross-like structure. And in this circumstance, Jesus takes that imagery and applies it in a surprising way, must have been surprising to Nicodemus. And we're not even sure if Nicodemus got the point that Jesus was making that night. Maybe it was sometime later after Nicodemus became a true disciple of the Lord that he came to understand this. But at this point, what Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, which is Jesus connecting the serpent to whose work? To his own work, not to Satan's work. So how can the serpent, which would ordinarily be understood as a symbol of Satan's work or Satan's person, how can that function in any sense as a good symbolic representation of the work of Christ? Well, we have to, we have to rely upon explanations given to us like this one that should be familiar to everyone. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn to it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, And I'll read verse 21. And speaking about Christ, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I don't have time to fully develop the point that Paul is making, but the essence of it is Christ, in some sense, became sin for our sake in order to bear the full penalty that our sins deserve and in order for him then to be able to be able to spiritually legally transfer his righteousness to us so our sin was transferred to him his righteousness was transferred to us it's the great exchange that we identify as the core and the heart of the gospel of our salvation and in that aspect of the work of Christ not describing the nature of Christ at any point at any moment but describing the work of Christ in which he took on the characteristics of sin for the sake of not becoming a sinner but for the sake of bearing the penalty that our sins deserved and in that sense the the serpent on the pole uh, perfectly does point to Christ all right, um, that brings us to the end of our time. I thought I'd get more than three done, but I got another three done. And sorry about that, but we'll just go. Uh, maybe next time I'll, I'll squeeze in four. We'll, we'll, see how, we'll see how far we get. Yes, 12 in this section. It certainly does work out that way, but we'll see how we go. All right, blessings tonight.